Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talkie bit. Sometimes when uh, when I'm working on a talkie bit, it's a little bit like writing a song. Maybe that's not a meaningful analogy. I don't know for you, but here's how it works for me. I, I get a I get a line, I get a phrase, I get a mental image, I get a feeling, whatever it is, and and it's compelling to me. There's something about it that's sticky, and I want to chase it down. Uh, and in the course of chasing it down, sometimes it turns into a talkie bit, sometimes it doesn't, and then I just have to kind of let it go or you know make a note and let it perk. However, that works. Uh, if you know any songwriters, you've probably had that conversation when they're like, yeah, I've had this phrase in my notebook for two years, you know, and then, and today I got a chorus, you know, it kind of like, it, it kind of goes like that a little bit sometimes. I don't really know exactly how it happens when it does, but I've learned to trust that process at least most of the time. This week, though, that process led me on a bit of a wild goose chase. Uh, it's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Wild goose chase. Uh, it's not a tame goose chase. This will be more meaningful if you grew up, you know, rural perhaps. But um, in a tame goose chase, one could imagine perhaps getting the goose into the barn, right? But a wild goose isn't going to want to be herded anywhere, is it? Like, it doesn't, you don't have to know anything about wild geese to imagine that. If it gets even a, a modicum of momentum and it's wild, it's going to be up and away and it's never going to be captured. So wild goose chase typically serves as a metaphor for something that's futile, right? That's kind of how that metaphor plays. And on reflection, that seems kind of fitting, uh, given what I get, what, what, what we're ultimately chasing here. Every week, the thing that we're after when we gather is more about mystery than it's about anything else. It, it really is a wild goose chase. Not so much because it's futile as because we are after something that is not corralable. It's not going to fit in the barn. <laughs> and, and we're primarily shaped by the chase and not by the capture. And I think that's a reasonable way to think about spiritual formation in lots of ways. We're shaped by the pursuit. In any event, the particular thing that I was chasing this week was a quote. Uh, this past week I read Bono's biography, Surrender. And the, the biography, anybody read it? Okay then I can say whatever I want. And the biography, in terms of my impressions of it, if Tim Penner was here, I'd have to be very careful because Tim has read it and read it assiduously with the mind of a scholar. And so he would, take, he would call me out if I mis- misapplied any of this. But the, the biography, in my experience, like a Bono song, is a bit of a ramble. It feels a little bit stream of consciousness, honestly. Um, but it is structured around 40 particular songs. It's roughly chronological. A lot of it is about Bono's activism which is very dear to him, uh, dear enough to him that in the course of the biography he reveals that there were points where his engagement with that actually threatened the viability of U2 as, a, as an enterprise, as a band. It was, it was like he calls it the other band. 
and, and just feels like sometimes it felt like it was going to take over and had similar impact potentially uh, if it wasn't well cared for. And over time, it sounds like it has been, but on his family and his marriage. It was deeply occupying for him. There are lots of stories in the book about various people that he's met and worked with. Lots of those are high-profile people. Uh, in his quest to promote social justice, he has unashamedly traded on his currency as a rock star uh, in this enterprise. Um, and, uh, and so he's met lots of folks. And in particular, his activism has been focused on in the early days of the AIDS crisis. And then as that sort of saw some response, uh, ending killing poverty, his work with uh, Jeffrey Sachs in that regard. And, um, and then just sort of this big problem that you talked about, our local version of, which is food insecurity. And the fact that there is enough food in the world to feed the world, but it doesn't get distributed in ways that mean everyone eats, among other things. And so one of those stories is about a particular leader and a saying with which this leader greets a lot of the people that she meets and works with. This is a high-profile person, somebody with lots of institutional power. Here's the thing in the connection to the wild goose chase. I remember the saying... I can't remember who the leader is. I can't remember what chapter it's in. I can't remember what the organization is that she was with. I went to try to find it, and I realized I've got to reread the whole middle section of the biography to find this. I don't have that much time. So a wild goose chase. I've finally given up. I let the project of locating the quote go, which means I can't fully attribute it, and I'm sorry about that. If uh, Tim Penner, if you're listening to this later and you know who this is in the context of Bono's biography, let me know. I'd, I'd love to look it up and close the circle. But the quote I remember, and this is this person who I think runs a fairly large NGO, if memory serves. This is, a, this is a question that she just buttonholes people with unapologetically right out of the gate, like virtual strangers. She'll just, she'll just walk up to somebody and say, what are you doing with your life? Just, you know, and I, and I deliver it in a way that I think gets people's attention, generally speaking. That's a pretty straightforward question, right, in lots of ways. What are you doing with your life? It does suggest there's some things that are implicit in it that I think are important. It suggests that we have some agency in our lives. We have some choices to make uh, within the range of the options that are available to us. It also suggests, it's, I think it's built into the question, that it, it behooves us to live a purposeful life, one that's deliberately on about things that matter. And that could have lots of shapes, Right? I mean, there are so many ways we could spend our lives that are full of purpose. And a lot of them are ordinary. They're even tedious. They're, they're things like caring for others, taking care of the grandkids, raising our own kids if we're parents, paying the bills, making sure that the animals in our life are treated with kindness and, like, and the people around us. And okay, we could go on. The list could be as long as life, right? There are so many options that the question almost seems silly. But maybe... How we feel about that question has something to do with what vantage point we take if we're trying to answer it. Are we going to try to answer that question, what are you doing with your life, by looking at our calendars or at our hearts? Is this mostly about how we're spending the minutes of the day or what motivates us through the day? Is it more about what we do or why we're doing it? Is it about the tasks or is it about the tenderness? Now, as is often the case, that kind of either-or approach to a question like this can be both inadequate and clarifying. I think it's inadequate in the sense that life is generally a lot more complicated than either-or. There's lots of both-and stirred in there. It can also be clarifying in the sense that it can sometimes help us to sort of see a hint or a tilt to see something about the way we're living our lives that has us more occupied with this kind of general category than that. Right? It can be revealing when we quiz ourselves that way.
Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring some ideas offered by Tricia Hersey in her book, Rest as Resistance. And last week, we spent some time exploring that. Actually, we weren't just exploring the value of it. We were talking about the necessity of daydreaming and, uh, and talking about how if there's no dreaming, then there's no imagining a way of proceeding that's different than what has come before. Somebody had to sit and go, what, what, how much food is going to waste and how could we do better with that to come up with what you do? Every, every day and every week and you know other organizations right but if nobody stopped to look at that and think about and dream about how it could be different we just keep hauling it to the landfill because the system's already in place you got to intervene to make a change and so no dreaming no change no movement on the make the world better file you know Hersey sums it up like this she says dreaming is the way we move toward liberation because it is a direct disturbance to the collective reality of life under capitalism grind culture her word her phrase for the way in which capitalism together with white supremacy just take the maximum amount of labor it can out of humans. Grind culture, she says, is violence. This can't be stated enough and we must repeat it over and over to ourselves as we deepen into this truth. You will read it throughout this manifesto, throughout her book. Grind culture is violence and violence creates trauma. We have been traumatized deeply. Our divinity as human beings has been ignored and degraded. Thousands of people privately come into our social media inboxes each month and courageously share the deep guilt and shame that they feel about resting. Quote, I feel like I should be doing something. I feel worthless when I'm not checking off things on my to-do list. I feel lazy and unworthy if I have a full day of leisure. Close quote. Bound up in guilt and shame, unable to settle into the gift given to us when we can just be. This is where the dreaming begins. You are activating all the power that has been forgotten. You are making a new path. She connects all of that to dreaming. There's this, um, there's this thing in lots of change models called the grown zone. I'm, I'm going to just show you a picture of that. Can everybody see that around me? Okay. The reason that it has the shape that it does is because of the way we tend to experience change. When it's business as usual, what to you is on the left-hand side of the slide, it doesn't take up that much space in our life. We know how to do this. We've got the shortcuts. We've got the practices, right? We, we, know how to, we know how to throw things into the bin and the truck comes and takes them to the landfill. You don't have to think about that. It kind of just happens, right? But if we're going to do that differently, now we've got to rethink this whole thing. Now it's not business as usual anymore. Now we have to find out how to get it, how to manage it, how to find volunteers, who needs to receive it, who, who, who should receive it so it doesn't go to waste on the other, and so on and so forth. I'm picking on this illustration because it's right in front of us today, right? But it's a great illustration of the groaning that it can take to actually change something. And on the other side of life in the groan zone, we can start to bring some of those things together and make them into, into healthier systems, right? And the, the process repeats itself again, of course, because change happens. But that's what the groan zone's about. How much space, how much turmoil change takes up is, I think, well illustrated in this particular model, right? It doesn't take up that much space to do things the way we know how to do them. But, oh, my word, you, Horace and Heidi, you're moving, you know, right? I mean, change. We know it, right? There's all of a sudden so much energy that n normally we don't have to expend this way. We expend, and it's hard. Dreaming our way into a better world sounds kind of lovely, doesn't it? like in the context of even that idea. And maybe that's why 
people reacted the way they did last week when I shared Hersey's daydream that she has in which people made all the labor they needed to survive and thrive by dreaming. So I was actually reading about a daydream she had that included that. And when I read that part, people in the room reacted visibly. Some people burst out laughing. Because there's something inside of us that says, oh, that's nice, but it's nonsense. And I resonate with that. My initial reaction when I read that thing from Hersey last week was this kind of joyful incredulity, the way I sometimes feel when I read uh, the delightful speculative fiction of Becky Chambers, from some of you know, who insists on creating worlds in which characters keep pursuing kindness even in the face of things like tragedy and suffering and profound differences as, as species. And it's tempting when I encounter those things to just sort of shake my head and wonder at the imagination that's required to even come up with an idea like that, and then I file it under fantasy, and then I get on with living in the real world, right? I had a conversation recently with someone about their experience of hearing somebody else raving about something good that had happened in their life, and they were just kind of going off online about how God was so good to them and God had blessed them so much and wasn't this wonderful, and, and sort of attributing all of this lovely stuff in their life to that narrative. And the person that I was speaking with is somebody who has had a lot of what can only be called random and profound suffering come into their life. And this is a person who has a lot of love, they're for others, for the world around them, someone with a deep and personally significant faith. And they were angry. They were heartbroken. They were kind of baffled. They were in not safe for work language terrain responding to this. It hurt them. Because if this happy story could be accounted for as God's blessing, then why were they living through things that could only, in that frame, equal a curse? What was wrong? this story. Some of us have been in this moment and if we've grown up or had our beliefs sort of significantly formed in the school of God is in charge and everything has a purpose, sort of that mythology, then the almost inevitable outcome when we're in the suffering zone, when we're in the groan zone, is that we turn inward and we start to wonder what must be wrong with us. Because otherwise, wouldn't we be telling that happy story? Because that's how it's getting told, right? If we believe that that narrative of God is in charge of everything and everything has a purpose, if we believe that that actually constitutes reality, it's pretty hard not to go to that other place when we're suffering. I mean, I know there are gymnastics that get done in there. I'm familiar with that. I'm just not going to spend any time on it. Because I want to get to this question. What if that narrative does not outline reality? What if there's not something wrong with us, but with that story? What if we've somehow gotten what constitutes reality and what constitutes fantasy kind of muddled? I mentioned that, which could feel like a total aside, I realize, because I think it translates reasonably well to exploring what we believe, which is what this community exists to do, when it comes to these conundrums about dreaming about a better world and then shaking our heads and walking away because those dreams can never be real, in quotes. What if, and I realize this is a big ask to even entertain a notion like this, but what if the prevailing norms don't actually represent some kind of immutable version of how things have to work? What if what makes them prevail is a story that is broken? What if the way things are is not the way things have to be at all? What if what if that story of this is just the way things work? What if that represents something closer to the way things work because it's the way we let them work? That's a disconcerting thought. 
and one that might make us even feel sort of accused or judged or angry because it can carry with it the suggestion that we're responsible in some way for things that are pretty awful. I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but also, personally at least, I cannot find a satisfactory way around the thought that unless I wish to understand myself as fully a victim of my circumstances, I do have some responsibility for the way things are, at least to the degree that I have some agency in this world. I have resources, and those start with what is contained in my body. It's not limitless, but it is mine. It is my energy, my imagination, my beliefs, my time. But some of these ideas about how the world might be or might become better seem so far-fetched that it's hard to know where to even begin. Well, you might think this is a bit of a nonsensical way to proceed in the face of questions like that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play us a song. <laughs> I, I think when I, when I get into a co- too tight a corner, you know, philosophically, ideologically, or whatever, I, I do tend to look to the artists because they tend to play in the margins. And in the margins is where we're going to find a different perspective. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast or, uh, I mean, online, you'll get to kind of overhear the song. But if you're listening to this later on the podcast and you want to hear the song, you're going to have to go look it up uh, because I don't have the copyright release to include a, a broadcast quality version of it in the podcast. Plus, if you actually find it on a legit commercial site, a couple pennies might make their way back to the artist. The song is from Bruce Coburn's new album, O Sun, O Moon. How many of you have, uh, in the room have heard that album? Anybody listen to that yet? You know, you don't even have to be a fan. It is, it is so worth your time. It's beautiful. came out this May, so it's relatively recent. Coburn is not a young man. He's pushing 80. Um, and I would say he's arguably writing some of the best music of his life. And this is from a guy who's had to reinvent his guitar playing because of really severe arthritis, uh, for example. Somebody who you know, knows about suffering uh, in that way. I don't think he's writing his biggest hits. I think that would be to confuse you know, commercial success with good art. But he's writing really great songs. And... Uh, in any case, we'll talk about the song in a moment, but the song that I want us to listen to is a song called uh, Push Come to Shove. What will go wrong will go wrong. What will go right will go right. Push Come to Shove, it's all about love. And, and then the, the, the album is, is uh, redolent with unapologetic sort of looking at the horizon of life. Like this is a guy who's singing about the end of his life. And, and how, you know, it's not, it's not a pedantic album. It's not like I've learned this. I'm going to share my, you've just this kind of open-hearted, here's how it looks to me from here, you know pretty lovely there are days when tedium rules others when you wish it were so <laughs> right push come to shove it's all about love or so it would seem in the great to and fro here's a here's a, a rhetorical question in our context push come to shove it's all about love is that any more satisfying when it comes to but how do i proceed with this dream to change kind of process than somebody saying go into your dream space and let a vision of how things could be different come to you is it all about love more satisfying than that? Honestly, I feel like a bit of a newbie in this space of dreaming change. And so I'm going to defer to people who have spent their entire lives thinking about, living into, writing about some of these ideas. In particular, one of those voices in my life has been, continues to be, um, the late Bell Hooks. Um, how many of you have had occasion to read Bell Hooks? or no? Okay. Pretty fantastic. Um, Hooks, that's a nom de plume. It's a, a pen name. Gloria Jean Watkins, uh, African-American author, feminist, social activist. Um, her writing, and she wrote something like 30 books as well as her academic work and 
articles, and she's been in a number of documentary films. But her her work has been focused on the interconnectivity of race, class, and gender, and how those things conspire together to produce and perpetuate systems of oppression and domination, in particular. And this little short bit that I want to read you is from a text of hers uh, that has the title, Love is the Practice of Freedom. So she's connecting the dots that I've been saying, how do these connect for the last half an hour, all right? And I want you to listen in this short text for the deliberate connection she makes between love and liberation. We'll talk another week about the difference between liberation or liberty and freedom. It's a really interesting little distinctive there, but not today. Just this for now. Without love, our efforts to liberate ourselves and our world community from oppression and exploitation are doomed. There's a, there's a, there's a statement for you. As long as we refuse to address fully the place of love in struggles for liberation, we will not be able to create a culture of conversion where there is a mass turning away from an ethic of domination. And Hooks and, and many after and around Hooks, including Hersey, they're not, they're not talking about a tweak. Like they're talking about a different world. They're talking about a mass turning away from something that is destructive and toxic and not, not okay towards something very different than that. And Hooks is saying, if, if, if love is not in the thick of this, this is not going to go well. Um, we spent quite a bit of time earlier this year talking about fierce compassion, more of a Buddhist concept. But... Similarly, with fierce compassion, as distinct from sort of the warm, fuzzy thing that we often think compassion is, misunderstand it to be, and Cooks is making the point that it's, that it's like, like ferocity and compassion can live together in ways that might take us by surprise. Love and justice live together. Love and revolution live together. Love and rest and revolution live together. But without love there to temper some of those other things, we might get a new version of oppression much more readily. And it's, it's not only love that's the fuel for this, but it's love that is the temperance of this. A um, friend of mine who's sometimes concerned about the fact that the table doesn't have a, a body of oversight to keep the talky bit people in theological check or something uh, asked me one time if I had any concerns about that danger. And... and how I judged what I would or wouldn't explore uh, in the context of this community. My answer for them then is still my answer now. In this community, I can be as reckless as love will allow. I'm not saying I do it well, (laughs) but that's the guideline. That's the thing for me. That's gravity for me. So that's my lived experience with this concept in this context, right? That intersection between love and change, love and challenge, love and exploration, love and mystery, all those things. Somebody I read a long time ago talked about the idea that, that when we make huge vows in our lives that are fueled by love, they can seem vague. They're actually not vague. They're all-encompassing. That's different than ill-defined. It's more that we're not trying to define it, the minutiae of it, because we can't know it. So we say, this includes everything. 
Now we're going to figure it out. Right? So that's that kind of an intersection. Without love, our efforts to liberate ourselves and the world community from oppression and exploitation are doomed. So let me connect a couple of dots here and then we'll wrap this up. We had a look at this thing called the grown zone a little bit ago. The idea that dreaming about how the world could be better or that putting love into practice is some sort of a floaty fantasy, that's nonsense. It's not a floaty fantasy. It's work. It's big, deep, sometimes confounding, sometimes heartbreaking work. And it's the kind of work we do because we believe in it, not because we might get to see the ultimate outcome. Like lots of things we invest our lives in that we care about, right? In fact, given the reality of our interconnectedness as a species, thinking of it as my work or your work, I would say probably isn't a good idea at all. And it's not because we have no individual responsibility in it, we do. But I think there's a, there's a bit that can go missing right here that's actually one of the weaknesses in the prevailing culture's dominant perspective that makes us vulnerable to oppression in lots of ways. This is how it works for me as a metaphor. I think it's more like we're standing on the bank of something that I would think of as like the lake of life. You know, we're on the shore of the thing that's our lives. And we're tossing the pebbles of our dreams and our love into it. And, and they're making some ripples, you know? It's not that they don't matter. Bloop, and we can see a ripple, right? There's some consequence. And beside us, there are others, and they are tossing their pebbles as well. And behind us, there are others, and they're watching and wondering if maybe they should step up and make a contribution as well. Maybe they have a dream pebble or an act of love to toss in. Enough of these ripples, enough of these ripples, and maybe we'll get a wave. Enough of these waves, and maybe we'll see the best sort of tsunami. But right now, it might feel mostly like tossing pebbles until our shoulders ache and then tossing some more because we believe that push come to shove, it is about love and because we think it's worth it for the possibility of living in a world that is turning, even if it's slowly, away from what Hooks calls the ethic of domination and towards something for which we use words like justice and love. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. My hope, as always, is that this monologue is the fuel for dialogue and, uh, and the catalyst for our own thoughts and musings and then thoughts and musings between and among us and with others. All right? Peace.